your key point there was how would you use your network? And I think that's really important. So developing and nurturing a network in the first place of people that can support and nurture you is really important. So those are people, both your peers within the geospatial industry and also in the wider industries or spheres that you would like to be working in. So for me, it was very much companies with an environmental focus. Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest on the show today is Helen Cooper. She is the founder of a geospatial consultancy and today on the podcast we're talking about how she got started in her business and what you might need to do or think about to start your own. I'll be back at the end of this episode with a few thoughts and resources that I would like to share with you. Hi Helen, welcome to the podcast. You are the founder of a geospatial consulting company and today on the podcast I really want to hear a little bit about your journey in the hope that it might sort of help other people that want to go out and start their own business in the geospatial industry. I think before we get into that side of the story perhaps you could just take the time to introduce yourself to the audience and maybe let us know how you got involved in in geospatial. Hi Daniel, thank you so much for inviting me to, to join you. So as you've said my name is Helen Cooper. I'm the founder of geospatial consulting company, Map It Out. I'm a geographer by training. I read geography at Oxford University in the mid-1990s when GIS was in its infancy. I think that ArcView 3.2 was released the year after I graduated. And I have to be honest, if GIS was covered in my undergraduate degree, I might have blinked and missed it. I followed this with a stint working in IT for an organization that dealt with oil spill response. And then I had something of an epiphany when I realized that maps and all things tech could be combined. And I went to study for a master's in geographic information at City University London. I did this on a part-time distance learning basis so that I could continue to work at the same time. After that, I got a job that was pretty much exactly what I wanted to be doing, heading up a GIS team at an environmental consultancy based in London. And after 10 years of working in that role, I took the plunge and decided to set up independently. And that was how Map It Out began. Wow. Okay. So there's a lot to talk about there. I just want to go back to this distance learning that you were doing for your master's in GIS. And then it sounded like you went straight from that, from finishing off that master's to leading a, a GIS team. Is that correct? It is. Yes. Yeah. So I think I was partway through. It took a two and a half years to do my, my master's. It was supposed to be two years, but I actually took slightly longer. So I was still working on my dissertation when I got the role at the environmental consultancy. That's a huge leap just out of, you know, to be leading a, a GIS team just like once you've finished or you're still working on your master's at the time. What was that like? Was that something that you were prepared for? Was it, was it a scary move to make? It was daunting in some respects. So if I step back slightly to before that, when I'd started working in IT support, and then I had worked up to being in charge of the IT and the information systems for the whole organization that I was working in. So I was working in a a management role, although it wasn't directly parallel. So there were some things that I was comfortable with and other things that were perhaps a steeper learning curve, which is nice when you start a new role for there to be, you know, you want some challenges. And you also want a level of comfort. So it was, it was quite a nice, a nice switch at the time. I'm really pleased that you said that. I think that's super important as well. I think if there's not that certain amount of or almost discomfort and uncertainty, then I don't think it's going to be challenging enough or interesting enough like going forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. So 
the bit that I really wanted to talk about today was this uh, geospatial consulting business that, that you have founded. Why start your own business? Would you mind telling us a little bit about your thought process, where you were in your career when you decided that, hey, I'd really like to work for myself? Yes, of course. So I was, as I said, GIS manager for an environmental consultancy. I really enjoyed my work and I worked with a small team of GIS and visualization specialists working on quite a wide range of projects. So we'd work with landscape architects, environmental planners and ecologists. And we did some really interesting work, including things like open space strategies, where we'd be using GIS to calculate distances to different types of open spaces and recording their quality to feed into recommendations to improving spaces on a a strategic way. And we did a lot of work with protected landscapes, such as national parks and areas of outstanding natural beauty, which I really enjoyed. So also, During this time, I'd had two children and I'd returned to work on a part-time basis. I was working two days a week, which on the surface sounds lovely and very manageable. But what I actually found was that I felt really pulled in all directions and I started to feel like I wasn't doing a very good job anywhere. So at work, I didn't feel like I was present enough of the time. And then I'd end up responding to clients and working on my non-working days. So I'd end up feeling like a, a bad parent as well all around not good. So I really felt like something needed to, to change. And I decided it was, it was time to give something else a go. So I took a deep breath, handed in my notice and off I went. Wow. <laughs> hey, I can completely relate to that feeling like you're not doing a great job. I know during the, the, the COVID crisis here in Denmark, I'm constantly feeling like I'm failing on all fronts. I, I'm not, you know, doing my best at work in my family for myself. It's really frustrating. So I can understand that frustration there. What did you do to sort of put yourself in a position to succeed with, with this new venture? While you're at work, did you have some sort of checklist of things that you needed to get done before you handed in your notice? That's a good question. I'm not sure I was quite that structured. It would probably be very sensible to be structured in that way. So what I did have was I'd had conversations with potential clients with ex-colleagues who wanted to work with me, who would work with me if I was independent. We had as a family some savings, but not a huge amount. And my husband also runs his own business in a completely unrelated field of audio and music production. So having the whole household move to self-employment did feel scary. And I have to admit that some friends and family questioned the wisdom (laughs) at the time. But I think more than having a checklist in place, I probably had just the attitude that I would give it a go and I would give it my best shot. And if it didn't work out, then I'd, you know, start looking for another job. So I think that was probably the thing that best equipped me at the time was just having that that attitude to to give it my best shot. So I guess the next question here is where, where did your first clients come from? You talked about having conversations with colleagues, people that you're working with, asking if they would be interested in working with you if you became independent, if you started your own business. Is that where these first clients came from or or was it somewhere else? Yeah. So I had two ex-colleagues from my previous two companies from different different organizations who were both now in in different companies. And they were both interested in in employing me to do projects in quite different different areas. So one of them was a, a landscape architect. And my first project with them was feeding into a, a conservation management plan. And the other client was in a completely unrelated field. They're a shipping membership organization. And the work I do with them was actually not terribly GIS focused. It's much more about data and databases. 
So I, I'm not, I certainly wasn't, and probably I'm still not precious about, you know, it has to be geospatial if it's something I feel I can contribute to. I really want to jump in and talk about some of the tasks that you do, some of the work that you actually do for you, for these clients in just a minute. But right now, I think it's really interesting for the listeners to understand, how did you know how much to charge these people? Was it a per project rate that you went for or was it an hourly rate? What, what did you, how did you know how to do it? It's a really good question and it's, it's a very difficult question as well. So I had a good idea of what the range of charge out rates were in the environmental consultancy that I'd worked at and I knew what I was being charged out at as an individual. So I decided to decrease my charge out rate by you know, something like 20% to make me more competitive. I think charge out rates can sometimes seem like a mystical process and it's something that a lot of people starting out ask about. And it's difficult because people don't like to share their rates publicly, but it's been really great to see some, some things like, I don't know if um, you're aware of the work of Daniel Huffman and Ali Olivier in the States. They, they set out a freelancer rate survey a couple of years ago, or possibly more than that. They've, had, they've, they've run a few surveys, I think, which is really helping, I think, the GIS community pool their resources on this so that we as a community set our rates at something we feel is you know reasonable <laughs> i think it's also worth remembering that if your rate is high you might be less likely to charge for the time you spent umming and ahhing about how you're going to do a job but if you've set your rates at what you feel is quite a low low rate you're more likely to want to charge for every minute you've worked on a on a project so there's probably a happy medium somewhere i charge on a an hourly basis but I do get to the end of every project and I ask myself two questions at the end of every project. I say, is it better? And would I pay this amount for what I've just delivered? And hopefully the answer to both of those questions is, is yes. Does the confidence to do that, to ask yourself those questions and answer them honestly, does that come from experience? Is that something that, that we can teach ourselves or that we can learn? I think they're questions that anybody can, can ask in a, in a way. It's, they're reasonable questions. Have I done something that's made something better and it's a really broad question but you know is the world in a tiny way better or worse as the result of the work that I've done here and if this was my money would I pay this amount for the work that I've delivered and I think you can ask that at any stage of your career I don't want to belabor the point here but I'm I'm also really interested to know if your pricing has changed over the years and if so what was your strategy behind changing your pricing it has I have increased my rate over the years it's not a conversation that's terribly comfortable ever. I work with a range of clients quite closely. So I've just had to have those conversations with, with my clients and ask if they are comfortable for me to put, put my rate up slightly. And there's, I guess, a sweet spot where both you and your client are happy with the rate. I can see this being a difficult conversation with clients, for example, that you've worked with over a longer period and all of a sudden things change. You know, you say, hey, I would like some more money, please. But I can see this being a completely different conversation with new clients. Is that the case for you? It is different in a way. But I think every time you're putting together your costs for a client or for a particular job, you always have to take a bit of a deep breath. And it's not, it's never, I don't find it a comfortable thing to do particularly. But I think it's something, I guess, if you're running your own business or if you're in freelance world, it's something you have to do. And not everything about running your own business is always comfortable. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that's my take on it, I guess. So when I think about charging for things, for work that you're proud of, for things that are making the world a better place, I actually think it's a generous act to build sustainability into it 
so you can continue to do work that you're proud of and that makes things better. And I, I realize not everyone will have the same opinion of this, but I really believe it's important. And I think oftentimes we're doing ourselves a disservice by not sort of building that sustainability into the work that we do and ensuring that it can continue. I think that's a really nice take on it. And I think when you're running your own business, you have to remember that there's an awful lot of time that you can't charge for. You can't charge for, you know, the time you spend building your website, talking to, you know, having initial conversations with clients, doing your accounts, all sorts of things, you know, that that aren't chargeable time. So you have to take that into consideration when you're setting your charge out rate. You t- you can't take holiday, pa- you know, you can, but you you don't get paid when you're on holiday or when you're ill. So when you're setting your rates, I think it's really important to think, as you say, sustainably about what, what, you, what you need to be able to continue doing this. Because ultimately, I love doing the job that I do. I feel very privileged to do a job that I love doing. So you're right, setting your rates sustainably so that you can continue doing that job is an important part of that. I'd like to move on a little bit now. And I, I really appreciate you walking us through that, what your thought process looked like and how it's changed over time. I, I think that's going to help a lot of people that are either have just started out or are thinking of, of going down a similar path. Can you talk to us a little bit about the clients that you work for? So earlier in the conversation, you mentioned there was like obviously several of them and they're quite diverse. So, and not necessarily all doing things with geospatial. Could you give us a bit of an understanding of the kinds of companies that, that you work with and perhaps what you do for them? Yeah, absolutely. So I've got about four or five core clients that I work with on a regular basis. And others appear for one-off projects over over time. And as you've said, I've got quite a diverse range of work. So I work with a landscape architect, a shipping member organization, a physical activity consultancy, and a small environmental consultancy. So it keeps me interested and active in a lot of lot of different areas. And I really like having having that diversity in my in my work. One of my clients actually came about from a conversation my husband had with a friend of his in the pub, which pretty much went along the lines of, do you need any maps? Well, actually, yes, we do. <laughs> and um, they've developed into a really great client and I love working with them. So they work with various organizations with an aim of getting people to be more active. And that sounds quite trivial on the face of it. Getting people to move more should be quite straightforward, really, shouldn't it? But it has huge impacts on health and well-being outcomes. And I've heard it said that if physical activity was a, was a pill, whoever discovered it would be awarded the Nobel Prize, which I think is really true. It's really important for physical health and mental health. So my work for them involves bringing together data from a lot of different sources, showing things like healthy life expectancy across an area, childhood obesity, rates of disease like cancer and diabetes. And combining this with other indicators of things that we know make it more challenging for people to get enough physical activity. So things like poverty and deprivation. And so my work brings these indicators together to help generate insight as to where initiatives could be effectively deployed. And we've also been doing a lot of work on the success stories of these organizations. So we've been using Esri Story Maps to tell some of their stories. And it's been great to to put all of that that together. And it's completely different to my work. So I mentioned that I work with a landscape architect quite a lot. And that work I'm often bringing together, again, data from lots of different areas. I might be bringing together ecology, archaeology, tree data, topography, and and mapping it all for for an area so that they can make 
the decisions they need to make on how to plan a landscape. So the commonality with all of my work is all about helping people to, to make better decisions. I think that's a quote that I stole from one of your earlier podcast guests. <laughs> I think it's Adam Carno who said his elevator pitch is now, I help people make better decisions with the power of location. And I love that quote. I think that's absolutely what, what I do. And I also help people to communicate and tell their stories using location. Do these clients that you work for, do they know that the kind of work that you can do that it's possible? Do they already have an understanding in their minds that, hey, if I just had this on a map, if I could visualize my data somehow in a, a geographic context, it would let me do X, Y, and Z. Do they know what you can do for them? I guess is my question. Or do you start off with something like, yeah, I can make maps and then help educate them in other ways that, that you can help them get to where they're trying to go? That's a really good question. And it varies according to, to clients. So I've got a range. I suppose there was a range of understanding with the clients that I work with and with the physical activity people that I've, I was just talking about. We've definitely been on a journey together. So when I started working with them, they would use Google Maps to map physical activity supply assets, you know, your village hall where you can do yoga or your football pitch outside or whatever it is, to, just to help them understand the places where you could be physically active. And we've been on a real journey of looking at the data sets that can help inform their work to give them much greater insight and how we can combine those data sets together and put them online using a variety of dashboards and story maps to help inform their work. Whereas other clients, for example, landscape architect client or environmental consultancy who I work with, probably both started from a point of view of very much understanding what GIS can do. But there's, there's always, because GIS is always developing and changing, I do feel like it's very important to, to stay up to date with what the, the possibilities are and also to be communicating those to your, to your clients because you don't always know what they, what they want, but you might mention something that, that makes them think, oh, that would be great for this particular scenario, but you, but you may not have discussed that scenario before. So it's, I think communication is really important throughout the whole process. So you talked about going on that journey with the one client where they started off using Google Earth, I think you said it was, or Google Maps to display their data essentially. How do you balance that sort of desire to do more for them, right? To, to upsell, I guess you could call it if you're working at a, a fast food chain, you'd be upselling things. How do you balance the desire to do more for them, but at the same time not come across as the pushy, salesy consultant? I hope I don't ever come across as the pushy salesy consultant. And I guess it's because I genuinely feel excited about the work that they do. So rather than saying, oh, you should use this shiny new tool, it's more of a case of, oh, we could put this together and that could help us achieve, you know, X. It could help, we could put together this dashboard and that would help this organization understand their local area so much better. It's a difficult process, isn't it? But it's, it, it's all about having open lines of communication, I think, rather than here's a sales pitch, this is what I can provide. It's, I think you need to spend a lot of time listening to what they need as a client and not just to what they say they need out of the, the GIS services that you're providing, but much more broadly than that. What do they, what do they need overall? Yeah, when, when I think about what people need overall, I think it requires, like you were saying, a lot of empathy there. And you need to see them, right? Where are they trying to go? How can I help them get there? 
And sometimes that help might be upselling. You know, we can also do these seven things over here. And sometimes I think that help might be, don't do that. You don't need this thing here. Yes, it's shiny. Yes, lots of people are talking about it. Don't go down that path. I think that's really important as well. And it shows, at least for me, that you have the client's best interest at heart. Yeah, I totally, totally agree with that. And I have had the odd client who said, I'd like a story map, please. Everybody's got a story map. And, you know, my question is, what are you trying to communicate? What do you want your story map to do? Because if you just want a story map because everybody else has got a story map, then that's not going to end well. Whereas if you're trying to communicate something and you think that a story map might be the best medium to do that, that's a different, a different matter. So yeah, I wouldn't always, like you say, upselling isn't always the right thing. <laughs> We've talked a lot about story maps, for example. And for me, this, this sort of is synonymous with, with Esri technology. Is that the kind of technology? Is Esri software the software that you use on a daily basis? Or do you jump between Esri and open source? I do use Esri software on a daily basis. I have huge amounts of respect for people who work in open source as well. And I, and I see fantastic work from people who only use open source tools. For me, I've just always used Esri in my, in my day-to-day work. And I decided quite early on in my business to invest in ArcGIS and additional extensions. And I guess the way I see it is these, these are the tools of my trade and I value them a lot. And without them, I couldn't, couldn't do my job and deliver the, the work that I do. So yeah, but, but, but I, as I say, I, there's, there are so many options out there. It's definitely not the, not the only route for sure. So now we're talking about the, the tools of your trade, as you call them, which I think is a great way of thinking about it. And so the other tool of your trade is a computer. It's that, that's the, the means of production, right? Is there any other larger sort of investments that you've needed to make in order to start and, and run your consulting business? Some expenses along the way, but I think those are the those are certainly the biggest the biggest two the computer and the and the software to run it. I kind of tried to follow the advice that my dad had given me a number of years ago. He said the trouble is we're all trying to run tomorrow's software on yesterday's hardware when we should be running yesterday's software on tomorrow's hardware, which I like. So I think I probably followed half of that when I when I started out and I spent as much money as I could afford on getting a, a powerful laptop you know, with plenty of RAM and storage and a decent processor. I didn't quite go back to using ArcView 3.2, but didn't follow all of the advice. But um, yeah, th- those are definitely the, the main expenditure. But there are also things like, you know, professional indemnity insurance and other day-to-day costs like, you know, website uh, hosting and, you know, various what you think of as more incidental expenses that you just have to be conscious of, whether it's, you know, a the odd Dropbox license or Microsoft software or, ver- you know, various, various things like that, that, you know, just do consistently take a, a small chunk out of every month. <laughs> so I think another big cost of starting or running a business anyway is, is marketing. So right at the start of the conversation, you talked about how you got those first couple of clients. How do you get clients today? Are you actively seeking more people to work with? And if so, how do you market yourself today? What what marketing channels do you use or have worked for you in the past? That's a good question. Most of my clients have come through word of mouth. There are either people that I know or they've come about through knowing people that I know or they found me on LinkedIn. I suppose at the scale that I am, word of mouth has been very effective. If I wanted to grow very rapidly and pick up a huge number of new clients, I would probably have a much greater focus on on marketing. But I think word of mouth is powerful. 
I tend to think of every project I do. If I go that bit extra, that's my marketing spend in a way. You know, I want every project to be good and for me to be very happy with it and for that to speak for itself rather than have to spend on the marketing. And I think there's something really liberating in just the thought that you only need five clients, right? You have five core clients and then these other sort of ad hoc projects that you work on from time to time. But this is great, right? This this means that I could start a business and I don't need a thousand clients. I need three, four, five, maybe 10 really good clients and I can have a business. Yeah, I totally agree. And for me, I really enjoy working on that basis because you get to know what your client needs. You get to know their sphere of working and they understand what you can provide. And I think because in GIS, we can be notoriously bad at communicating what we do as an industry. I know I feel like I often am. I think there are some people out there who are an awful lot better at it, certainly than, than me. But I think it's got so much potential to help with so many different things. I think the reason I like working with clients on a long-term basis is because we have this developed understanding over time of what we can provide. And I always find it easier to say, this is what I can provide showing a map or a, you know, something interactive rather than talking about what I can provide. It's so it's, I like working on that in that basis. I think the temptation when we're working for ourselves, running our own business is to say yes to everything, right? We, we don't want to miss out, especially at the start. We, we need to get our foot in the door. We need to get some experience and hopefully create that word of mouth that you're talking about that's been so successful for you in terms of marketing. When do you say no to projects? You're right. The temptation is definitely to say yes to everything. I haven't said no to many projects. I think the projects that wouldn't fit well with me, probably those people don't ask me. <laughs> so I, I think there's probably a certain amount of self-selecting. There can be times where everybody wants something all at the same time, for sure. Again, it comes down to communication. It comes down to asking either clients or potential clients if the deadlines that they've suggested are, you know, what's, what's pushing those deadlines? Are they an internal deadline for them? Are they external for something else? You know, what's, because if you've got a lot of stuff going on and you've got a lot of plates spinning in the air, you need to, you do sometimes need to be able to say to somebody, I, I can't deliver that within the time frame that you've asked for, but I could deliver it within this revised timescale. So I guess there's an awful lot of just keeping communication channels as open as, as possible. What's normally the reaction when you say, look, I, I can't do this in the time frame that you're asking. I need to do this. Or perhaps we need to revise the, the steps in this project a little bit. Are people receptive for that, for your advice? Or, or do, you, do you get pushback? Yeah, I mean, it's not something I do terribly often. I always try and accommodate everybody, but sometimes it's, it's not physically possible. And I guess because, again, it comes down to working with clients on a long-term basis, but because those clients know me well enough to know that if I possibly can, I will do everything to meet their deadline. There's generally a, you know, an understanding of if I can't meet a deadline for, well, A, I wouldn't agree to meeting a deadline if I couldn't meet it. And B, if, if I suggest that we, we, you know, we change something, they're generally receptive to altering it if, if there's good, good reason there. So it sounds like you've got a great relationship with, with the clients that you work for or with. Is there anything that you have done in the past or perhaps consistently do to help sort of nurture that relationship? I guess I always have a lot of questions. I know I keep talking about communication, but I think it's so important in the work that we do. So I think I try to nurture those relationships by continually 
working on my understanding of what they're trying to achieve as an organization and checking back in to make sure that the work I'm doing is what they need, because there's no point in me going away and producing something and throwing it back in their direction if they're not using it or there's something not right in it. So I ask an awful lot of questions and I always check back to to see if w- what I've provided meets with their expectations. I feel like you've given us a really great overview of how you got started and how you got your first clients, what you're doing to maintain those relationships, the kind of software that you're working with, the kind of tasks that you're asked to do for these clients. I think it's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for that. Just towards the end of the conversation now, I'm wondering if you could give us some advice. Let's say I'm thinking about starting my own geospatial consulting business. So one of the big things I would have is where are my first clients going to come from? What would you do if you had to start again today in terms of of getting clients? What channels would you use? How would you use your network? How would you put yourself out there? Your key point there was how would you use your network? And I think that's really important. So developing and nurturing a network in the first place of people that can support and nurture you is really important. So those are people, both your peers within the geospatial industry and also in the wider industries or spheres that you would like to be working in. So for me, it was very much companies with an environmental focus. And spending time nurturing that that network and understanding what people do is really important. Because I really think that geospatial tools have, have the potential to help with so many things. I think this difficult step of finding your first clients can sometimes be a case of finding out more about the work of other people around us that, you know, if we find out more about what people are trying to do, we can often help provide geospatial services to help them people make better decisions. So I think developing that network is really important. But I also think there are another couple of things that people can can do in those early steps. I think putting together a portfolio of your work is really important so that you can showcase what you can do. And it doesn't matter how basic that is, whether it's, you know, your undergraduate projects that you've you've worked on, it's still showing people what what you can do. And also learn to present your work to different types of audiences because there are some audiences where you can say, I did this geospatial analysis and this was the output. And there are others where you can't talk in those terms. You have to put things in a way that your audience can understand. So I think learning to adapt your output to different audiences is is really important as well. That's absolutely a crucial thing is understanding who am I talking to? What message do they need to hear in this moment that's going to help move them forward? I think that's, that's so important. And I think as technical people there, the temptation is to fall back on that sort of technical understanding that we have and use the words that we're used to using. But I, I think this is a huge mistake when we're looking to convert people to being geospatial users. You mentioned networking in there before. So I think it's one thing to have a network. I think it's a whole nother thing to tell your network, hey, this is what I'm doing, to be on the hook for something and to say, hey, I'm going to start this thing here and I'm not sure if it's going to work. Was that a scary thing for you to do at the start? Yes, very much so. But I think once you start doing it, it becomes easier and easier. I would always worry that, oh, the tone of my words isn't quite right. Or, you know, am I going to be criticized by others within the GIS community for not doing something? You know, have I, have I put a halo around that text and somebody's going to say, oh, that's awful. But I think on the whole, the geospatial community is a really supportive environment, or certainly I, I find it to be. And we do build each other up. And that's a really great thing. So I think share your work. We should all be sharing our work. And 
yeah, let's all keep telling the world what we can what we can do. I totally agree. I think the geospatial industry can be extremely supportive. I think it's up to us though to take that step and give them the opportunity to support us. That's for me anyway. It comes back to being on the hook for our work, showing our work, working in public, and giving people the opportunity to support us and guide us and help get us to where we're trying to go in the same way that we're doing for them. I think it's really important, but perhaps easier said than done. Yeah, absolutely. Helen, I've really enjoyed talking with you. I love it when I meet people like you that have started something and have been successful in it, especially if it's in the geospatial industry. It takes a lot of courage and yeah, thank you so much for your generosity. Thank you for showing up today and and letting us in on your journey, sharing your journey with us. Really appreciate it. If there's someone sitting out there and they think, I would really like to connect with Helen. I'd really like to learn more about what she's working on or perhaps ask, ask some questions. Where can they go to do that? You can find me on LinkedIn, Helen Cooper, map it out. If you Google, I'm sure you'll find me on LinkedIn. You can probably also find me on Twitter, but you would have to put up with me equal amounts of, of geospatial output and diatribe against inequity in the world, perhaps. But um, if, you can, if you can stomach that, you can find me on Twitter as Helen of Stowe as well. Thanks again, Helen. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much for having me, Daniel. It's been really nice to talk to you. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Helen Cooper of Map It Out. So the URL for that is mapitout.co.uk and I'll put links to that, of course, to her website in the show notes, as well as links to her LinkedIn profile and Twitter account. So during the conversation, Helen mentioned a really interesting resource, which was all about providing transparency into the, the different rates different freelancers were, were charging. And by the looks of things, this survey has been carried out over a number of years. And I will put links to this in the show notes. You can check it out for yourself. I think this is, if, if you're interested in doing freelance work yourself, starting your own business, this would be a great resource for you just to get an understanding of what other people in the in industry are, are charging. There were just a couple of points during the conversation that I'd really like to try and highlight for you here. And the first one being that Helen has four to five core clients. So Helen doesn't need to be for everyone. She just needs to be for, for someone. And I think this makes it more attainable. So sometimes, on, especially on the internet, when we think of you know, building an audience, we think of thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people, but we don't need that. We need four or five clients, people that believe in us, people that are willing to give us a chance. So this is not about finding everyone. It's about finding someone and doing work for them, helping get them to where they are trying to go. During the conversation, Helen mentioned that what she does is help people make better decisions using the power of location. She, she also mentioned that she helps people tell their story using location. So these are the services that Helen is, is selling. These are tangible things, tangible outputs. But what I think that the client is getting is, is something different. Yes, they're getting that, but they're getting something else as well. They might be getting the status that comes with being able to say to a group of their peers or perhaps in, in the boardroom, people like us, organizations like ours, we invest in technologies like this. We are adopting change. We are not waiting for change to be forced upon us. We are trying new things. We are innovative. We are trying to make things better by making better things. So another thing I think that Helen's clients are getting is certainty. They're getting the certainty that comes with working with a professional like Helen, knowing that Helen has got this, that if there's a problem, they can call her, that she will show up that she has their best interests at heart, that she knows where they are trying to go and she's gonna help them get there. So I guess the question becomes, well, how do we build status and certainty into the services that we are providing as geospatial professionals? 
I think certainty is a product of consistency, of making a promise and keeping it. And I think this is what separates the hobbyist from the professional. So if you think about this podcast, for example, the promise of this podcast is I will be here for you each week. So each week, I don't have to make a new decision about whether I'm going to publish a podcast episode or not. The decision is made. I've, I just have to keep the promise. And I don't always feel like it. Some weeks, it's a real effort. But I made a promise, and I'm trying to keep it. And I think if we can consistently make promises and keep them, we build up certainty. People come to rely on us. They understand what, what we can deliver and what to expect. And this creates a, a certain amount of security. So let's talk about status then. How, how do we build status into to our services? We, we can give people status by firstly understanding where it is they're trying to go. So the other day I heard this really interesting analogy and it was people don't buy a drill. What they're buying is a hole in the wall. No, 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 wait. wait. No one really wants a hole in, a, in the wall. What they really want is a place to put their ex expansion bolt. Oh, hold on. No one cares about the expansion bolt. They want a shelf. They want to be able to fix a shelf to the wall. Uh, actually, it's not so much the shelf. They're more interested in having a place to display the books that they've read. Or maybe what they really want is the status that comes with being able to display the books that they've read. Look, I'm the kind of person that reads books like this. So let's think about this in terms of, of geospatial, in terms of our industry. Yeah, I know the client said they wanted a map, but perhaps what they really wanted was a way of visualizing how far they've come, the progress that they've made, Maybe they're looking for an easily understandable visualization that says, hey, we are ahead of schedule. Maybe they're looking for the status that comes with being ahead of schedule. Maybe they want to leverage that status and use it to seek new investment, new clients, to apply for bigger projects. Maybe when we create the map, if we do our work well, maybe what we're actually doing is giving them the status that comes with getting better clients, bigger projects, more investment. So we've talked about status, we've talked about certainty, and we understand that this has value to our clients. That's great, but, but what does it mean for us? Well, we heard Helen mention this idea of going on a journey. So they started one place and they continued on from there. They didn't stay there. And I think if we can build these things into the products and services that we are offering, then we get to go on these kinds of journeys. We get to develop a relationship. We get to try new things. We get to do work that matters. I think that if you are a professional, doing work that matters for people that care and you have generously built in status and certainty into the products and services that you are offering. I think when it comes time to renegotiate the salary, renegotiate your rate, I think the conversation might be a lot more comfortable when both people, when both sides understand that, yeah, you'll pay more, but you'll get more than what you paid for. And that's it for another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week. It's much appreciated. As always, you're more than welcome to reach out to me on Twitter or LinkedIn. You'll find links to both those accounts in the show notes. Or if email is your thing, reach out to me on info at mapscaping.com. I, I would love to hear from you. So thank you very much for listening to my rant here at the end. I'll see you next week. Bye.